Welcome back to Pretty Little Grown Men. I'm David Greenwald. I'm Dom Sinicola. Uh This week we're going to talk about Interstellar, <laughs> not yeah. not a teen murder drama. Um, although uh, we just checked, and uh, like always, Janelle is on the top of the heap on Dancing with the Stars. She is killing it. Yeah. Uh, she got a perfect score last week, so um, I think they're down to maybe the last five or six um, with Tommy Chong bringing up the rear, Alfonso, of course, being right next to Janelle in the lead, which we saw from the beginning. Um, I feel pretty good about our initial predictions. I think we should go back to old podcasts and and see how how well we predicted I, how I this think, turned out. <laughs> I think maybe this should become a... We should start a uh, Dancing with the Stars gambling website, <laughs> yeah. Gambling Futures on Dancing mm-hmm. with the Stars, and we could just place those odds. We would do really well, I yeah, think. Yeah, you know, I know in Vegas you can gamble on sporting events. I don't know if you can gamble on reality competitions. I would imagine <laughs> so, you know. I remember when the first Survivor, do you remember like way back when when the first Survivor happened? Sure. Um, and Rich, Richard Hatch, right? With Richard Hatch. Yeah. And uh, just the fervor that surrounded that and how... Um, in Vegas, people are like, we're definitely betting on all of that stuff. Right. Like, why not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. that's Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't something... I was in Vegas uh, earlier this year, and it was not something that I ran into. But it must exist somewhere. That's surprising that you didn't run into that. Yeah. Reality TV is such a, a huge part of our lives that I would think that people are betting on that kind of stuff all yeah, the time. Yeah, you'd think there would be like a whole cottage industry around mm-hmm. it. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe I just missed it. I was there at the same time as the, the hacking conference, like the computer hacker conference. <laughs> and so there are all these, you know, you could clearly tell who was there for Vegas and who was there to, you know, be a giant nerd. Mm. Uh, and it was really scary standing in the brush line because you have all these guys behind you who like, you know, you don't know if they're like cracking into your phone as you speak, you know, <laughs> looking for your Apple do, Pay numbers Do they look haggard and tired? No, you know. Greasy. They all, I mean, we talked to some of those guys and they, and they seem nice, but it was just like... You have all of these crazy computer superpowers, and I don't want mm-hmm. my credit card to be anywhere near you. Yeah, it really comes down to uh, you have this great power. How do you wield it? Right. Like, like Spider-Man. Yeah. With great responsibility. Speaking of super uh, superhero movies. Sure. Uh, Christopher Nolan, director, Christopher director of uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, and a, a, a generally great filmmaker but with some flaws that i think we'll get into um that have shown up throughout his work uh which i think really just bottomed out in this movie which i would describe as a good movie trapped inside a really really stupid movie right and i think that you know as we were talking about earlier uh before the podcast uh there we, is we've already talked for like three podcasts worth of material about this movie so we're <laughs> gonna try and zip right through this and not not give you a two and a half hour christopher nolan podcast well the so this is a movie that has been in the making for quite a long time i think uh close to maybe a decade where uh christopher nolan's brother jonathan nolan uh, originally wrote this script for Steven Spielberg, and the original script was quite different from the what it, the movie turned out to be, um, with a, a much more streamlined narrative. Um, uh, and cri- once Christopher Nolan got his hands on it and decided to make the movie uh, like anything that he makes, it became this like big sprawling epic with tons of plot threads. Uh, an infinite amount of uh, thematic touch points and uh, a 
ceaselessly frustrating amount of plot holes. Right. And I think, you know, we've seen in the last few days a lot of people saying, well, here's why the science is bad, or here's why this couldn't have happened, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think people should be talking about that in terms of the characters mm -hmm. and the plot of the movie rather than criticizing like, well, maybe this planet was too close to a black hole. I mean, you know, it's a sci-fi movie. It's about being imaginative and showing you something you've never seen before. Um, and so the idea that the ocean planet would be dark if the movie was more realistic, it's like, well, who's going to go see that movie? <laughs> no, no one's going to go see, uh, you know, pitch black ocean world, the, the 20 minute section of this movie, you know, and all you hear is, all you see is like a Matthew McConaughey with his flashlight, just like, where are you? Where are you? And you hear right, the ocean right. roaring behind all right, all right. It's so dark. All right, all right. <laughs> Dude, um, I actually think that that's what, that's like what's so fun. Um, so to back up, uh, I was really excited about this movie because uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is that uh, in the past maybe year or so of my life as an adult human being, I have been really super interested in um, theoretical physics in a very conceptual way. Like, uh -huh. I'm not a math person, so I don't, I can't talk about it in a math way, but that's what's so fun about theoretical physics is you can talk about it conceptually. You don't have to know the math to talk about it. And I would venture to guess that Christopher Nolan doesn't know the first thing about the math behind this shit. No. So... That's what's so fun about this, is you can talk about things in very broad conceptual terms. Because, essentially, what we're doing is we're taking concepts that, as human beings, we are not supposed to know, and trying to know them. Sure. Which is fun in itself. Oh, it's insane. I mean, this is... You know, I mean, the whole thing of the movie, you know, spoilers, obviously, if you haven't seen it, but... Yeah, we're going um, to we're gonna spoil, we're gonna spoil, spoil your face off right now. Yeah, we're just going to blow this movie up. Um, but, you know, the whole thing of the movie is they have to get inside a black hole and figure out what goes on, mm -hmm. which is a physically impossible thing. Right. Right? And so for people to be criticizing the science of the movie... Well, listen, this is a movie about people doing this impossible thing. <laughs> yeah. Can you can you please just go with it and not not be kind of a dick about it? Yeah. You know? Uh -huh. right. I mean, nobody went to Godzilla and said, Well, you know, I don't think there would really be this two hundred foot monster who eats radiation. Mm -hmm. You know. That seems like a little bit problematic to me in right. terms of what we know about, you know, organic matter on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. You know, people went and they were like, Oh, Godzilla. That was that was super <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So I Godzilla you know, was super awesome by the way. But yeah, I thought it was great. But we, we should talk about why Nolan is held to this standard and why mm -hmm. his movies have so much attention. Um, and for me, it's like he's the guy, he's in this very rare class of directors who is interested in making genre fiction uh, and is able to do it on this gigantic budget scale and is trying to do it in like an artful, intelligent way. You right. know, he's not trying to make a Planet of the Apes movie or, I mean, I would argue that this summer sci-fi with Godzilla and um, the Planet of the Apes movie and some of the other things were the smartest, it was like the smartest year of sci-fi in a long time. Oh, I love the Planet of the Apes movie. Yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with The Dark Knight, I mean, he basically made what could be considered the best superhero movie and one that was really taken seriously and considered as like a quote-unquote film mm -hmm. as opposed to a summer blockbuster popcorn thing, you know? Right. And him more so than... J.J. Abrams doing Star Trek or something that's, you know, or Guardians of the Galaxy or these Marvel movies, things that are, you know, it's seen to a degree as fluff, 
Uh, and they're round, the Marvel movies are roundly criticized by most people as being, well, it blew up another city and there were fights and blah, blah, blah. And, mm. you know, to me that sort of underrates what's one of the things that movie making allows us to do, which is be creative and show you these things that you've never seen and, you know, not just be dramas about, you know, sad white people getting divorced or whatever. Right. And, you know, and that's why, like, uh... I've I've tried and I I just saw Interstellar yesterday, so I'm still kind of like thinking about it a lot. But in in relativistic terms, you saw it like seven years ago. Right. I, I saw it thirty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Under exactly. the under the laws of the, if we're sticking to the scientific. I drove home it. really fast. Right. <laughs> um. So, I I'm really uh, I don't want to say I disliked it because there's a lot about it that I really loved. From a just from a an audience perspective, from sure. someone who goes to movies uh, for a lot of reasons, and I think that I love all movies really, and and not every movie you've ever seen, but all kind, all kinds, of, <laughs> right? All kinds of. Movies. It's like it's like if someone ever asks you, like, well, what kind of music do you like, and you say, well, I like all types of music except for country and classical, and it's right. like, well, then you really don't like all type, types of music. Like, I I genuinely like all types of movies. Um, and I, my favorite movies span the gamut from popcorn movies to, um, to like artsy, you know, slow, nonsensical, nonlinear stuff. Uh, but so there's a lot about this movie that is really, really impressive and really at the core of movie making is, uh, really makes me ecstatic about, about. Christopher Nolan's ability to make movies on this scale. Right. And I could name a number. Like, I think that even the climax of this movie, which a lot of people thought was really stupid, and I don't even know if you thought you thought it was kind of stupid. I thought stupid. it was really stupid. Okay. I think you like this, you, you this movie more than I did, I think. Pro probably, yeah. Because, I, so the end of the movie, and here's a super spoiler alert, but the end of the movie is essentially, uh, um, and this is also bridging from, uh, the fact that I've been reading a lot about stuff like this, and so to see this, to see this visualized in a blockbuster Hollywood movie, these ideas about physics, these ideas about 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 the fifth dimension, yeah, like attempting to be visualized in a, a hundred million dollar movie, right. I was like, fuck yes, fuck yes, this is fucking awesome because to have an I to have a director with his scope try so hard to create a visual space where you have these like aliens which are essentially just like advanced human beings maybe maybe, maybe. that's a that's a mcconaughey epiphany that comes out of nowhere which is one of my <laughs> real gripes with the movie is all these characters are suddenly you know both McCon both um Cooper and his daughter Murph, yeah. both of these moments were like, oh, of course it's this thing that I have to know in order for the plot to progress. Right, right. You right. know, and it doesn't really come out of any reason for it to be, except out of like fate or coincidence or convenience. Yeah. And it the movie has a bunch of stretches like that, which just really bothered me because it's just sloppy writing. Well, that's the thing is like, so, okay. Well, let's so, get back to the fifth dimension change. Well, yeah. So, so that's, so I'm talking about this as like, as sort of more like a set piece. Sure. So whenever I think about big set pieces, I think about a movie like, or movies like the Fast and Furious movies, which are essentially just, uh, uh, mediums in which to convey complicated, ridiculous action set pieces. Right. Or I think about, uh, especially, um, Peter Jackson movies, which, 
Uh, he's gotten to the point where it's almost like he's not even making movies. He's making visual, like, sp he's just making spectacle as a narrative piece. And I think uh, one movie that I think that was overlooked that I think is a really great movie is the Tintin movie uh -huh. because it is Peter Jackson's action set pieces taken to like this incredible extreme. That whole movie is just one fucking awesome set piece after another. Yeah. It's a fuck. I, I love I, that you know, Tintin movie. I love the, I love those comics and I read them as a kid and I really wanted to see that movie and haven't gotten around to it yet. So I need to do oh, that. Oh, it's crazy. I totally recommend it. It's so much fun. Yeah. But so, so you have this like set piece at the end of this movie, which is a, is postulated as, um, the, these higher beings constructing a third dimensional space within the fifth dimension in order to be comprehended by a third dimensional being. Right. Because um, they have lost, based on Cooper's theory, <laughs> they in ascending to this, uh, being able to perceive time as a dimension, as this, you know, being able to perceive the universe uh, in this post four dimensional way, mm -hmm. um, they have lost the ability to perceive it from the limitations of human beings and thus are not able to communicate with them. Yeah. So they open this black, they can communicate with gravity mm -hmm. and they open this black hole in the first place, mm -hmm. uh, this, this, you know, warp hole, or not this black hole, but the warp hole by Saturn yeah. that they go through in order to get to this other galaxy right. and save themselves in the past, essentially, by bringing humanity out to this thing. Right. Now, and see, so, so taking that last set piece in itself, in itself, it's a very compelling piece of cinema mm -hmm. to, to see like the whole idea. And then they, of course, like, and, well, I see, I disagree because to me, it's like, you're just showing, you're showing me this very interesting floating visualization of the daughter's bedroom. It's like, this is the, this is it. This is the <laughs> I mean, what, what bothered me about yeah, it was, I guess, yeah, I, guess. I mean, what bothered me about it was like, you know, it's the same ending as 2000. It's like clear homage to 2001. Right. right, you go through the warp tunnel and you end up in this room. Well, even like, all... even like, just you know, it's 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 not it's not a it's not a shot for shot recreation, but it is very much like the visual motif, like centering in on his on his helmet uh -huh. and just watching his face right. as like in the fringes you see these like weird things happening, right. which is very which is very well done because the crazy thing about all of this is that it's it's so hard to visualize something that essentially can't be visualized. Well, right. So they're trying to come up... I mean, and this was... And an that's issue. what Kubrick did so well. Sure. And I think the thing that's appealing about 2001 is that the ending is abstract and you are able to sort of take from it what you will, including like the star child at the end, which mm -hmm. you could view as like the evolution of humanity, which Nolan gets at in a very like obvious direct way here. Mm -hmm. And so Nolan's take... Nolan's reading of 2001 or his homage to 2001 is let me tell you exactly what this is. Let yeah. me not leave it open to interpretation at all. Let me solve the riddle for you even without evidence for it. Right. And I think that that's, and that's so then so then you step back from the, the set piece itself. And this is why like this is why it's so hard to say that I either liked or disliked this movie because right. you step back and you're like this movie from a writer's standpoint is just terrible because I mean, we could, we could, there's, there's, there's plot holes out the fucking wazoo, but. Right. And just things that are, I mean, you can go on. But even emotionally, it's so off. Well, that's what, that's what, okay. So one of the things that really bugged me in the movie, 
Um, well, let let me let me first say some of the, a few things that I really liked about it before I like trashed the whole movie. I thought that McConaughey was great. I thought mm-hmm. um, most of the stuff that happens in space was great. The first two worlds, um, the Matt Damon betrayal, I thought was really great. Um, my favorite part of the I love, movie... I love Matt Damon, by the way. I could talk about Matt Damon until well, the right. time. Well, right. You're a fan. And I didn't know he was in this movie, so I was like, oh, Matt Damon. I know. I That's forgot terrific. that he was. And when he showed up, I was like, holy shit, it's Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> but so my, fa- my favorite part of the movie, and I thought the most clever writing that was in the movie was when they go down to the water planet and they're down there for what seems like you think they're down there in real time Mm -hmm. and it feels like they're only there for a few minutes they deal with this wave they come out the other end and they're waiting for the engines to clear and the robot says well it's going to be about an hour Mm -hmm. so you're like all right they've been on the planet for like an hour and a half you know uh 12 years or whatever in relativistic time no big deal but then they get back and it's been 23 years Mm -hmm. uh which feels a little bit weird based on you as the audience watching this thing that seems to be in real time you know like there's a lot of moments in the movie where it's like time passes and it's not clear that it did and you don't really you're not really sure like what happened or what was communicated during that time well then you need and then you need the movie to tell you right and the movie is just like meh i'll kind of tell you but But not really but so the thing that i liked about it was they get back and the other scientist on the ship is like well you've been gone for 23 years, and I've been studying this damn black hole. I have a few white spots in my beard. Also, the the way that people aged in this movie was not, It was like, pretty sloppy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, anyway. but so they, they go and they sit down, and McConaughey watches, like, the 20 years of his son sending him video messages, and you learn that his, his son grew up and got married and had a kid, and then the kid dies, and you're seeing this all over a couple of minutes, and it really gives you a sense of the... M, gravity mm-hmm. uh, of of him being away and yeah. of the sort of deadline of like we oh, yeah. need to solve this problem before humanity is killed yeah. you know and I really like the tension of you know this handful of people in the ship like every minute counts everything is a resource mm-hmm. and that was really the strongest part of the movie to me and like the most honest connection between him and his kids is that he wants to get back before they die you know you know that's so that's actually like and maybe we can stop right here and say that one of the biggest criticisms that I think we both have of, of Christopher Nolan is that he's a smart director who doesn't trust his audience to be smart enough. Right. And so having that whole scene of, it's a very moving scene of Matthew McConaughey watching, uh, you know, like watching Casey Affleck become Casey Affleck and have a child and go through all this shit. And then like, and watching like the Cooper, the character Cooper, like, you know, just sort of lose his shit because he's realized that his whole family has aged, you know, that in itself is, is great. It's gravity. Like you said, uh, shown instead of told, but then there's a whole scene where Anne Hathaway literally has to repeat a number of times that time is a and is a resource just as much as fuel or just as much as air. Right. And it's like after it's already been shown to us. Thanks for like thanks like for fucking like beating that into my head. Like right. I didn't I don't need another five minute conversation about how how time is a resource or about how love is this this like metaphysical force that well this was man this was like the worst part of the whole movie was when Anne Hathaway's sitting there and you don't really have a sense that like there was like the little foreshadowing of it when Cooper's asking the robot about Anne Hathaway's boyfriend or whatever um 
or if she has some relationship or something. And that kind of, maybe I missed the scene, but that seemed like it came out of nowhere. And mm-hmm. they're deciding what planet no, to go I, to. I, it, it didn't. Yeah, so it was just like this random thing. And they're sitting there deciding what planet to go to, and they're going to go to the Matt Damon planet because, you know, and Hathaway's going to get outvoted because it's so much closer and he's still sending signals. Uh, And she, then Cooper's like, well, she's in love with this scientist who's on that other planet. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, I think we should go because science hasn't explained love yet. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I think there must be some like magical connection right. and I need to go be with my space boyfriend. <laughs> and it's just like, are you serious? This is, it, it felt untrue to the character. It felt, oh, yeah. it felt untrue to like, it just felt like a completely ridiculous thing mm-hmm. when the stakes are that high, you're literally trying to save human civilization. And it's like, well, I have this weird pet theory about love. So I think now is a really good time to put that into action. Right. Right. And it was just like. And, you know, the end of the movie sort of tied into that, too, where it's like love is this the magic connection that bridges all these gaps and allows us to save all these, save the human race, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, listen, I'm not going to tell you that love's not the most wonderful thing mm-hmm. and that you shouldn't make a great movie about love. Yeah. That's, that's fine. Find a way to do it that isn't, that isn't, like, totally idiotic. Well, that's the thing is, like, you know, we could, we could, we could put down and list every plot hole in this movie sure and it could be fun it could be really fun but but i think that the biggest plot holes the biggest uh criticisms of this movie that it that it deserves are those that don't that are emotional plot holes yes and i think that like a perfect example is is at the end of the movie when this the force of love has brought Cooper back from the farthest reaches of another galaxy right. back to his daughter and they have a meeting for meh, just shy of a minute. Right. Not once does Cooper ever ask about his fucking son. Right. Or his grandkids. Or, or his whatever. grandkids or anything. He walks into a room, there's all these people that are part of his bloodline that yeah. he never even like acknowledges and no one else in the room is like, holy fuck. Who is this guy? Right. Oh my god, it's our it's our space grandpa. <laughs> yeah. There's and, no hugs. And then There's he no just fucking home. leaves the room. Yeah, she's like, Well, you shouldn't have to watch your daughter die, even though I've been waiting for eighty years for you to come back. And he's like, Yeah, that's true. Okay, bye. He's like, All right, I'll see you later. <laughs> and that Good yeah, point. and then she's like, Well, you should go save Dr. Brand. Uh, because we just left her out there. You know, we didn't really know. We, we didn't have any other space pilots. You're the only one left in the universe, and we just figured, well, you know, when you get spit out by by the by the future alien humans mm-hmm. out of this black hole, well, you can go take care of it. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, come, the, it's like it's a dramatic moment, but it was so fucking stupid. Was that Ellen Burstyn, by the way? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I Perhaps. think that was Ellen Burstyn. Um, oh, speaking of Ellen Burstyn, what do you what do you and this is a and this is on a different level, but this is more about the actual craft of the movie itself. So the movie begins in the first maybe half an hour with um, uh, some exposition through uh, seem like documentary interviews, uh-huh. um, which the movie never picks up again until the it, very until end. the very end, yeah. Um, but. It feels like one of those like sloppy like expositional kind of things where it's just like this is how we can explain what was going on with the world right 
but then we're just going to totally drop it because it's hard to carry that throughout the whole movie. Well, and it's just one of these things where, you know, every sci-fi movie that came out this summer or the last two, three years opens with like a bunch of newsreels and it's saying zombies are invading the country. Yeah, yeah. This disease is coming through whatever. And it's the way, you know, Godzilla and Planet of the Apes and World War Z and all these movies. Oh, it was same. funny when we were watching, we watched Edge of Tomorrow, which is a movie that we both really enjoy. Which also opens with that. Which enjoys, the, like, it's, it's the funny. Same, that that's like the, that's the crazy like trope that all these movies begin with. It's just like, it's a picture of a map of the world and it's this like fire or this like spreading like goop that like takes over the right, whole world. Like, yeah, like big blue lines zapping from one place to another and creating this web. Yeah, well, you hear like CNN and Jay Leno like talk about like, all yeah, this shit. <laughs> and it's, it's become so cliched and it's so sloppy too because it's just like, just put us in the world and let us figure it out. You know? You know I it's actually, like, who cares? I actually read, um, uh, Phil sent this to me. Um, Phil, as, as podcast uh, fans might know of, is the... Uh, the creator of our theme song, and he was also on a podcast a few episodes ago. Uh, he sent me an article that was an interview with uh, William Gibson, a noted science fiction author. And what he was talking about was that what's really interesting about science fiction is that when you when you write a novel, you know there's there's this this sort of construct in a human's brain where you sit down and you open up a book, and you have to sort of become familiar with the narrative and with the style of writing with the author in order to become uh, sort of immersed sure. in, in the book. But the thing with science fiction is that it's like a construct on top of a construct. So when you first, if you're not, if you don't read a lot of science fiction and you start reading a science fiction novel, it can become incredi incredibly uh, cognitive, cognitively dissonant because uh -huh. you are essentially trying to put like two constructs on top of it. Not mm -hmm. only your construct of how to read a novel, but a construct of how to how to make sense of a whole new world right. that doesn't make sense. Right. And if the author is uh, treating you like an intelligent human being, they're not going to spell it all out for you because that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing is like you, and maybe that's what, what a lot of science fiction movies are lacking is trusting the audience to sort of just figure it out. Instead of just spelling it all out from the beginning. Well, and that's you know, and that's been my gripe with a lot of these, especially these or superhero origin movies too. It's just like you know, you have to show the villain's origin and the hero's origin, and waste forty-five minutes of the movie—not waste, but spend forty-five minutes of the movie. Like the Spider-Man reboot is perfect example, the Amazing Spider-Man, mm -hmm. where it's like you literally play out the entire sequence of the original Spider-Man movie, which is only like 10, 12 years older, yeah. you know, and you have Uncle Ben and Aunt May and the whole thing, and the story that's been told, you know, over 50 years yeah. of comic books, you know, yeah. that unless you're eight years old, you you know you know it, you mm -hmm. know, uh, you've heard the, everything about it five million times. Um and yet you have to blow 45 minutes on it before he can go out and do what anything. Right. And it's just like, we're already, we've already seen the trailer. We, we signed up to watch a Spider-Man movie. Just have Spider-Man be out doing his thing yeah. and going about his daily life instead of like explaining to us, well, here's the, here are the rules of how this can happen. We're not watching a documentary. Right. We're watching a creative, an, imagin an imaginative thing. Why not just like do it? Just be. Don't be scared of your material. It's like the uh, you know with the with uh, the TV show Gotham, which I, I watched the premiere and I haven't watched any other episode. It was fine, I guess. Uh, it's uh, I saw it might have been on Vulture. 
um, a supercut of all of the times that we've ever watched Batman's parents get murdered. Oh, sure. And it's like, and it's, I don't know, 15 times or more in pop in popular media alone, because it's just like, no matter what, there's this weird com- compulsion to sort of like, it's sort of a mixture between like, this is my take right. on this familiar story. Well, and it sets but up also the motives. Just like, it sets up a lot. I mean, there's right. a lot of power in the origin story, but it's also just like, you know, most movies, you don't see how James Bond gets started. He's just James Bond. Right. And no one has a hard time understanding the motivation of James Bond. You know, and it's in fact, like, when you actually like go back and, and that's what and that's what the new, the latest James Bond movie did. I think really well, and it's one of the better James Bond movies. Uh, Skyfall is because yeah. it actually you go back to James Bond's his homestead, Skyfall, where he yeah. grew up, right. and you know that's a big part of. In like you watch it, basically they get fucking like blown up and torn apart, you know, and I think that's that's really effective to watch a familiar character's past sort of be not only uh sort of dug up but torn apart right um but i think used within the context of a new story instead of saying like let's do this entire setup so you understand everything about james bond before you allow him to be james bond right you know yeah but i think that's also like one of those things that it's like in order to enjoy most movies you have to sort of just accept that exposition is a really dumb thing that's often written poorly so it's like you know, rarely do you find a movie that trusts the audience enough to bring it into the middle of a story and just let it let the audience sort of figure things out. You, you, I always think it's it's hilarious because even even some of the best written movies yeah. have scenes where it's just like, uh, you know, they'll you'll have two characters walking to the door and they're talking about something that just happened and you're like, did you guys, were you just like not talking on the drive over here? Right. Like, were you just like, we're just like, I'm going to sit in silence and let's, let's all contemplate this. And then as soon as we walk through the door, we're going to start fucking talking about right. this shit. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess that's just a, you know, it's tricky to balance making sure the audience knows what's going on and is in the loop and making sure the characters are communicating. I mean, we've talked about this with Pretty Little Liars mm-hmm. where it's like the characters are really good about telling each other what's going on. So yeah. everyone is always on the same page mm-hmm. and you don't have this, these like a lost type situation where, you know, one character is running around for two episodes with secret knowledge. That's like pretty important, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it stresses me out as a, as the viewer yeah. to like not have everybody on the same page. And I, you know, and I do understand that as it, like a very, there's a very human tendency in repeatedly talking about the same thing. I understand that. I just think that, you know, there's, you know, there's something to get back to Interstellar, there's something I find insulting about being sh- not only being shown something, but being told it repeatedly. Right. And I think that's Interstellar's biggest crime. Well, this is his. This to me is his great weakness as a as a storyteller. Um, I think he's a great director and filmmaker, but you know, in almost all of his movies, even the really good ones like The Dark Knight or The Prestige, mm-hmm. you know, they end in some kind of uh, masculine voiceover basically explaining the theme of the movie to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a movie like The Dark Knight Rises where you had three or four different themes, several of them like conflicting and messy, you know, dark, that's a movie that opens with this whole concept of like the 1% and income inequality and ends up becoming this sort of like it, it halfway through the movie, Bane comes into power and that was all just a front for this, you know, 
yeah whatever his crazy plan is and it's yeah, what, like what the fuck is that movie about it's well that's the thing you think it's going to be about you know the one per, or the the 99 rising up and taking the streets for gotham yeah. you know but then no it's really about you know a, a crazy person doing some revenge thing for Raz Agul or whatever you know <laughs> which which is fine but the movie which is a fine comic book plot line in general mm -hmm. but like the movie takes so much uh time making like using the Catwoman character and having her be a representative of that voice you know and making this like philosophical case that it really that really doesn't need to be made it should just be the cover story of a supervillain doing his supervillain thing right like let it be a comic book you yeah. know, because it just comes off as like this. The movie is trying to have a, a an idea, a political idea, and then abandons it. You know, and it's like you should have just not tried to have that idea because you did such a shitty job. Right. Yeah. You know. Hmm. You know. Yeah. I I think that it's what the one thing that we uh, talked about last night after. Um, after I saw the movie, uh, that makes a lot more sense. That actually, like, sort of sums up a lot is what you said about uh, lies and betrayal. Right. Um, that was, like, a big trope of Interstellar, I felt. Each of the characters really lies about something. Right. Yeah, and how... So the, the, main, the main liars in this movie are uh, Michael Caine's character, Dr. the original Dr. Brand, who is lying about uh, Plan A. His, is... Yeah, his plan to save the human race. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he thinks he knows better than everybody else. Yeah, and uh, so he was lying about that, and and so his lie fails because uh, he because it eventually is, relies on Murph to save the human race. Um, the next liar is Matt Damon's character, Doctor Mann, who uh, it's 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 and it feels kind of ridiculous saying the character's name now, like right. thinking it's, his name is fucking Doctor Mann. Um, anyway. Uh, who lies to save himself um, and gets, like, blown up and blasted into space. Right. Um, and then the last liar is uh, Matthew McConaughey, who... No, no, no. Anne Hathaway lies about her scientist boyfriend. She withholds. Because she wants to go to the, pl the third planet. Oh, that's right. So she lies. So she's a liar. She's a fourth liar. And she lies about love. She lies about love. And she... And I don't I mean, I, Her success is actually up for debate because... She eventually does get she to that gets, planet, yeah. but she finds that he's dead once right. he, when she gets there. Um, and then the last liar is Matthew McConaughey, who lies to Anne Hathaway, at, and as they're trying to escape the black hole, and he lies and basically like jettisons himself into the black hole. So this was such a... Well, so that sends a mixed message to me, too, because Anne Hathaway and um, McConaughey both lie for the love of another person. Right. You know, uh, McConaughey for his kids and Hathaway for her boyfriend. Uh, and so by having McConaughey's lie be vindicated mm -hmm. and Anne Hathaway's not, you're, the movie is basically, what is it implying to us? It's saying loving your kids is cool, loving your boyfriend is some selfish bullshit. Well, you know, that's so like what we were talking about last night is that, is that there's, you know, the moment uh, in the movie that I think speaks the most, tr most truth and is possibly the best written part of the movie is this conversation between Matt Damon and Matthew McConaughey before Matt Damon goes all like super evil like scientist guy on on Cooper 
And that's, he's talking about how uh, the lie that, that Dr. Brand talked about was necessary because human beings have not yet evolved past being able to uh, exercise empathy towards uh, people that they don't know. The species as a whole. Yeah. So you can't, you can't be empathetic idiot. towards the human race. You can only be empathetic towards a certain amount of people in your life that sure. you know. And so in order for uh, us to save the human race as a general group of people, you have to be able to think that you will be able to return, that you'll be able to like save specific people. Um, and that is essentially what the movie is saying, because the people who lied and succeeded are those who did it for reasons to save specific people. Right. Or did it for reasons due to the love of specific people. Right. A relationship. Um, yeah. And so you could say that Anne Hathaway is successful. It's just that she has to deal with the fact that her fucking boyfriend's dead. Right. Well, and she has to become the mother of, hu of humanity by herself. And this was, you know, this we've talked a little bit about the humor in the movie. And this is really the first Christopher Nolan movie that has jokes in it. Uh, and they come, they come from this funny CGI robot, which also felt like a weird dissonant thing. Because, you know, you, you have this planet that's falling apart and no budget and everything's mm -hmm. a disaster. And yet you have like this hyper-intelligent walking robot. That yeah. just like hangs out and and helps you out and can fly your your space plane like or your shuttle or whatever. Right. Like, what? What? Where did that guy come from? Um, but I think you know. I think Wait, weren't a, these robots like fucking farming shit? Well, I think they are. I think some of them. I think McConaughey earlier Cooper earlier in the movie is like fixing to his like robot grower thing. No. You know, but it doesn't. It just doesn't talk to him. <laughs> So yeah, maybe I like, you should get his robot growers to talk to him. Yeah, I mean, I like the robot guy. I thought it was. A, I thought the jokes were funny. I thought it was a good, a clever character. Um, but then you know that brings up this sort of idea of like having a ninety percent truth level, mm -hmm. which is a joke between Anne Hathaway and Cooper when there's maybe like some romantic tension, and she's like, nah, mm -hmm. you know. So that's like kind of a nice moment. But then at the end of the movie, he uses it when he's going to bail on her on the shuttle and they haven't discussed it and the audience doesn't know what's happening because we've had no sense of like that he would need to go in the black hole for some reason. Yeah, he doesn't really need to. Well, we, we don't think he needs to or well, we don't I even we know. Don't. We don't even know that he would be able to. Well, because... we're left to speculate as to why he would do that. Right. Uh, and it, it works out for him, of course. Right. Um, but it bothered me so much that he was like, okay, I'm, I'm piecing out. And she's like, what? And he's like, yep, 90% honesty. Holler at you later. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, it's, it's sort of forgiven by the fact that he goes and saves the human race. But at the same time, you're the last two people alive in this distant galaxy. You, you have a responsibility to get out to this third planet and restart humanity. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, well, I'm, not, I'm just not going to do that. Yeah. I'm just going to leave you all alone by yourself to start to, to with all the responsibility of your species. I you can, know? Yeah, it's I can, such a dick move. <laughs> literally YOLO. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's true because it's like, I mean, I always, I always think now it's like, what if, if I was at Hathaway, I'd be like, what the fuck? I want to go in the fucking black hole. Right. Like, why, well, why don't I get to go in the man, black hole? And that sequence, you know, I mean, you can talk about the scientific errors in the movie or whatever, but it really bothered me because 
what I want in these kinds of movies is for the movie to set up its rules and then live by them. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care what those rules are. I just want them to be relatively consistent so I understand what's well, that's going what, on. That's what, that's what we were saying about, about Inception, which is why Inception's a great movie. Inception is fucking ridiculous, but it's so it much- sets up rules and yeah. it, it, it exists by those rules to the T. Right. And it tells a really powerful... Uh, and deeply moving love story mm-hmm. uh, in a way that was so much more hard won and honest to me than this movie, yeah. where it's like he gets the reunion with his daughter, and it's, it's a minute long, and it's bullshit. Yeah. And then it's like, go out and be the space cowboy that you always really want to be, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> all right, I, all right. Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, but there's the scene where, like, okay, so the scientist has been researching in the black hole for 23 years and he's like well you could probably zip in there if you're going the right velocity mm-hmm. um but you know mcconaughey's sitting there in his spaceship getting pulled in by the gravity and there's no like way for him to meter his speed mm-hmm. he's just like well i'm just gonna hope this works <laughs> you know and it's just like come on man yeah. you just explained how this wasn't gonna work mm-hmm. like ah it's <laughs> so so infuriating um i mean i did think the effects were great i thought the all the stuff on the planet is great. I really enjoyed the tension of like having a the small crew in the ship and having to debate about how they're going to save humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, it almost reminded me of like Dawn of the Dead or one of these zombie movies where it's like you have a bunch of people packed in this impossible situation and they have to like really deal with being uh, they have to not let their emotions like tear them apart. You know, right. and I thought that sort of that was done really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, then you just get this giant Deus Machina, where super beings from the future who have been sending us me- sending messages the whole movie, presumably, or opening this black hole in the first place. It's like this was the simplest way that you could you could figure this out. You have these on my almighty perceptive beings who need this particular ridiculous sequence of events to happen. Right, right, yeah, and that. Yeah. I mean, and and that's the thing is like I I really want to avoid like really obvious like you know logical plot holes because it happens from the very beginning where uh they control a drone using a mouse pad yeah and a laptop uh and they uh he goes to school and his daughter is being um chastised for uh for not believing or not using a textbook that says the moon landing was faked um because for some reason to like bankrupt the russians yeah, like for for some reason, the human race in the future has decided that it's more beneficial to just deny the moon landing. Like it doesn't it doesn't it's, make any fucking sense, right? And there's this hint that NASA was going to be used to like nuke the human population, and then they didn't, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but now NASA has to be secret because yeah. they don't want to panic, you know, people the people on Earth and say that yeah, you're all gonna die. Yeah, you know. I mean, I guess that sort of I didn't mind that. That sort of made sense to me. But yeah, there was a lot of just like really dumb stuff. Well, I think that what this all comes down to is that, um, you know, it almost seems like now, okay, so now Christopher Nolan has made this like monumentally bonkers movie. So it's like, hey, bud, what are you going to do next? Right. Maybe you should just like strip it down and just make like a fucking thriller or like make like a like a small character piece and see how that actually turns out. Um, I, well, I don't think he's going to, you know, I don't think he's going to do that because well, no. there was a, there was a New York times interview with him, like a really long, cool interview that kind of gets into his brain a little bit. And it doesn't sound like he ever wants to go back. It sounds like he wants to make these movies, but you know, now he's made 
Inception and gone deep into the mind. He's made Interstellar and gone out into space. You know, what what else could he do? I think that's into a the question. body. He's gonna <gasps> he should make what's that what's that movie where Dennis Quaid goes into some into Martin Short's body? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Isn't it Martin Short's body? I think so. Yeah. But yeah, oh, that's a good idea. Inner inner vision, inner version, inner but yeah, inter, it's inter, like, interstellar. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's the thing. He's he's sort of explored. He's gone as far out and as far in as he can go. Yeah. Right. And he's done a movie about magic in the Prestige. He's yeah. done movies about superheroes with Batman. Um, I don't know what else there is for him. That to, dinosaurs. To, yeah, I mean, he now he has to do more time traveling. I guess. Um. Yeah. I mean, actually, he could time go, travel. Yeah. He could go back in the past. I mean, the thing that's that's disappointing to me about this movie is like. The basic premise is great. The idea of like we have the capability to go to this distant galaxy to save the human race. Mm-hmm. We have a strict time limit. You know, yeah. all of these ideas are great. It's well shot, and the relativistic stuff I thought was actually the first time I've seen something like that in a movie where we went down to this planet, we came back, and it's been twenty three years, and that's crazy. Yeah, and that's like such a cool dramatic thing. But then you sort of blow it all. You blow all that, all those ideas on just so many fumbles and. Bad decisions, basically. Yeah, you know, and then I think that what kind of throws me off inevitably is that, and we talked about this right before we started this podcast, is that um, uh, <laughs> I want to take a little side note. Do you know that I got a tweet about some, someone who tweeted at me about uh, about us eating during the podcast? Oh, really? <laughs> We're eating. The the person did not like. We just got cannolis put in front of us. The person did not like that we're sloppy. um, No, they said they they love us, but it's gross that we eat during the podcast. (laughs) Well, we're gonna eat cannolis while we're talking. I'm sorry. We're we're, my wife just brought brought home these delicious cannolis, (laughs) and you know, time is relative, and there's only you can't. You only have so many cannolis. Right. Time is cannolis are a resource. Yeah. Um. So what I was gonna say is that there's you know. With all of this criticism that's been floated at Christopher Nolan lately, he gave this interview where basically people were just like, what do you think of all of these uh, scientific criticisms? And yeah. he got all fucking Damon Lindelof. And he just started, like, he was basically just saying, well, you know, uh, I'm aware of the plot holes. I'm aware of the inconsistencies. Uh, you know, it makes sense because he, he was saying, you know, like, there's a certain degree of, uh, suspension of disbelief that you have to put forward in order to uh, make a movie like this, but he's so defensive, mm-hmm. and it's really it becomes offensive as the as as an audience member because it's like, bro, just let your movie be what it is. You don't have to fucking def- be so defensive towards it. Mm-hmm. Like you made this movie. If you think that people aren't going to understand it, that's insulting because that's stupid. Because you basically like set up your movie so that you made sure that people understood it. And two, it's like, if you're aware of these plot holes, then why did you put them in there in the first place? Like, it just feels, it feels, it feels really sort of like he's retconning his own movie. Right. Well, and the thing is, you know, his movies are so serious and he's, they, I mean, we talked about this Mm. a little bit already, but like, they do feel like they're pandering. They feel like they need to spell out the themes and the ideas for you. You know, they have to make everything, tie everything up in a neat bow at the end. You know, even at the end of The Dark Knight Rises, where you see Batman out with Catwoman in some 
fancy restaurant or whatever, which is like the end of like what Alfred said that he wanted for Bruce Wayne to do, you know, that he wanted to see him outliving his life and not being Batman anymore. Oh, I and forgot about that. Yeah. And it's just like, why, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to show us that. It's too neat. It's just like wish fulfillment, you know? I was actually... It just doesn't feel honest to me. I was thinking about, you know, because I was thinking about Anne Hathaway in, in Interstellar and how I don't think that she's a... I don't think that she's a terrible actress, but I also don't think that with this material, you can, like, it's hard to not see her overacting. Yeah, I because thought... Because the material just sort of begs for that. Yeah, I, I thought she was, like, actively bad in this movie. And I'm generally a fan of her and think she's, you know, a very capable and, and charming actress. But, like, even in the early scenes of the movie where she's, like, they're they're on Earth and they're talking to, to Cooper and trying to explain the situation to him. And she, like, goes from being, like, really chilly to being really smiley. And she's mm -hmm. super proud of her dad all of a sudden. And it's just like, who is this character? Right. I don't understand who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, and it comes back with like the whole weird love theory too. And it's like, you're just a really confusing character. I don't really understand what, where you're coming from. Well, I don't think that, and this might be, this might be kind of a leap, but now that I think about it, this makes sense is I don't think Christopher Nolan or his brother know how to write women. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like for him, for, for them, women in their movies are just vessels for either plot or like large emotional epiphanies, mm -hmm. you know, even like I, I, I really respect the movie as a, as a love story between a father and a daughter. Sure. I really respect that. But Murph as a character is, is so one dimensional. Right. She never really gets the chance to grow up and become anything. No. She's I mad mean, at her dad until, until her daddy comes home and saves her basically. Right. Essentially. And, and, and then in, in the climax of the movie, somehow realizes that the ghost is her dad. Right. The for no fucking reason. The gravitational forces are a message from her father in another galaxy somehow. And nothing, because that totally makes sense. Yeah, and nothing changes at that point. Right. The character, she never changes. The character never changes. Like, nothing happens. Uh, and, and that's she why I think that she's maybe, hanging out with Topher Grace, which is like, that's not a good idea. What are you doing? <laughs> you got to make some better decisions in your life. <laughs> like, hey, there's Topher Grace. Um... But I think that's like, you know, like she's just not a very well-written character, which is really sad because the whole movie is, is essentially pivoting around her relationship with her dad. Right. And she's just a, a really bad character. Yeah. I, I love Jessica Chastain as, as an actor, and, and so it's really disappointing to see her do relatively well in a role that is so underwritten that yeah. she is just like this, like... It's. I felt that it was almost hard to watch her because it was like watching someone who wasn't a fucking even emoting at all. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess the flaw in this movie is that um, Nolan thinks he's making a he, Nolan thinks he's making an awards season caliber science fiction movie, but he's dumbing it down to make it or is incapable of not making it this sort of. He thinks he's making a movie that's better than, say, Star Trek Into Darkness, like a prestige movie. But in reality... <laughs> Why did you pick Star Trek Into Darkness? Oh, I was just thinking about it. <laughs> um, but in reality, is making a movie that is just as dumb, if not more dumb. And I think, you know, it's just like, I wish he was actually making the art movie or the serious Oscar movie that he probably thinks he's making. 
mm-hmm. you know? Like, I would love to see the version of this movie that is not unbelievably stupid and actually, like, you know, is on the level of 2001 or is even, you know, even on the level of the stupid Planet of the Apes movie where you get this really powerful family dynamic between um, Caesar and his children and the human family that he's dealing with, Mm -hmm. you know, and you get this real sense of their humanity and the difference between the humans and the apes and, like, this the inherent conflict of the civilizations, you know, Mm -hmm. and how the apes can destroy themselves in the same way humans do. And it's really powerful. Uh, And this movie just doesn't have anything like that. (laughs) You know? It's like it doesn't approach that level of intelligence. Yeah. Because it has to solve everything and make it tied up in this neat bow for an audience, you know, so that they can greenlight $200 million or whatever to make it. Mm -hmm. But it's like, man, I wish you had actually made a movie that's as smart as you think you did. Well, that's why, that's why it seems like Christopher Nolan is at such a point. He is such a caliber of director now. And I say caliber um, partly as a measure of skill, but also partly as a measure of how much like money he is allowed to use to make these movies. That he seems like exactly the kind of director that could turn this shit around. That could make a huge budget artsy movie. That that could that could be intelligent, but it well, seems like I, I feel like he did with um, uh, Inception. Like I felt like Inception had a couple of minor issues. Like there's a the set piece at the end where it's basically Goldeneye. And you have people yeah. going on skis, and my issue with Inception was like it's dreams. You could imagine anything, and yet you imagine this like very sort of bland reality in mm-hmm. which to set your your dream situations up. But I thought like the plot and the characters and the love story and all that was like really sharply done. And I thought it was really one of the better sci-fi movies of the last few years, which is why I was so disappointed by this movie just being such a giant mess. Mm -hmm. It it really lost a lot of the humanity and the the depth of that movie. Well, you know, I think, I mean, I, I I love Inception. I really do. And so I don't want to go against it, but I also think that it's like, it's a it's a high concept movie yeah. that doesn't that I don't feel like really has like a lot of big ideas to it. It's like it, I think that it's it sort of sets up a difference between high concept and like really big ideas. Well, it's the only Christopher. Where I feel Nolan like this is like Interstellar that... is like flipped around where it's like not high concept, super big ideas. Right. I mean, I think I think what makes Inception so good is it's the only... I mean, and The Dark Knight, you could say this about too, where it's Christopher Nolan movies that pose a question, mm-hmm. where the ending is like, what is reality? Is Leo back in his real life or not? Mm-hmm. And the end of The Dark Knight is like, should Batman go on? Because he's created... He spawned the Joker. Yeah. And you're going to spawn chaos. And when he doesn't feel the need to make his movie into like this big punctuation mark, you know, in red pen, like the movies are a lot better mm-hmm. because you have to pull, go through so many hoops in order to create that punctuation mark as he did in this movie, as he did in the dark Knight Rises. That's also why the prestige is so good because the end of the prestige is essentially, uh, you know, like to, to what extent is following your passion or following art madness. Right. And like how 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 much is how much sacrifice is too much? Right. You and know? that movie has a crazy. I mean, that movie ends in a nice crazy plot twist. Mm-hmm. Whereas this movie really doesn't. It's just like here's a big fat happy ending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. 
I really, I, I see Christopher Nolan making a really intelligent movie because I've seen him do it before. And like I was saying, his first movie, Following, is a really intensely creepy, weird, small thriller. Yeah. That's very intelligent. Right. Um, and Memento, you know, for all of its high concept, it's a pretty smart movie. I mean, when I watched it, I don't know when it came out, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, uh, I, I went and saw it in the theater, and it was like this n- movie made by an uh, a unknown director that was like in a few theaters, and I happened to like, just read about it. Like, this is like before, you know, like, this is when I was in like, dial-up AOL, so yeah. I don't even know where I read about it, but I was blown away by that movie, and I miss, I miss Christopher Nolan, I feel like Christopher Nolan has that ability, and he's got the resources, and he's just too concerned with making a movie like Interstellar to make the kind of movie that could be so much better than Interstellar, that it saddens me but I hold out hope that someday he has that in him to make a really smart movie that is also, you know, costs $300 million. Right. Whatever, you know. Right. Um, and when he does, the audience will be there for it. I mean, why wouldn't they? <laughs> they definitely will be. I mean, they've shown it, like, you know. he's he, he has found no impediments to him being able to make movies of this size. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and in the meantime, you know, Movies like Godzilla and all these all these other directors are coming up around him who have been able to make movies that, you know, feel relatively intelligent and mm-hmm. not completely obnoxiously silly. So I think he's going to maybe have some good competition and pressure as yeah. he goes forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that maybe the response to Interstellar is going to, as defensive as he's gotten and I think as stubborn as he's been, I think that it'll only encourage him to try harder. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, let's wrap this one up. All right. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for tuning in. As usual, let us know what you thought about the movie. I have seen so many divisive reactions, even among my friends who have seen it. So curious to see uh, what you all thought about it. Uh, as usual, please star us on iTunes. Uh, let people know about this podcast. Get the word out. Yeah, and, uh, you know, come December, we will be talking about Purdue Liars again. Yes, the holiday special is coming, uh, and I can't wait for us to be digging into a new episode of I've, PLL. Yeah, I, I've, I've, also, <laughs> I've also been told, uh, Rebecca told me that when I say Pretty Little Liars, I say Pretty Little Liars, and I, it sounds like I'm saying Pearl Liars, so oh. I, have to, I have to be more... I have to enunciate pretty little liars. Oh, I, in, this, in this podcast. Yeah. Well, we're just so excited. We just want to spit out that <laughs> as soon as we can. Spemley. Uh, I saw a picture of Spemley today. They're looking cute. They're looking happy. I don't know. Let's. It was on. It was. It was just like a. Instagram I don't. I don't know that. that Spemley. What does that mean? Spencer and Emily. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It was just Troy and. What's her name? That's their ship. Their shipper name. Yeah. That's their, that's their best friend name. It was, it was oh, I see. IRL. I see. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad they're hanging out. <laughs> um, so well, I anyway. think that's it. Uh, I don't know if we got any plugs. The cannolis that we ate. Um, these are from the Italian market uh, up the street here in Portland, Oregon. Oh, oh my God, these are delicious. They're so good. Yeah. And all they do is they take like their frozen cannoli uh, covering, and then they just put some. Uh, frosting with or the whatever the cream with mm-hmm. the chocolate chips in it, and they're just like, here you go, here you go. Takes about two seconds, um, oh, but it's yeah, it's delicious. Yeah, so that's the Italian market. That's in it's a 
food cart that's sort of adjacent to Belmont Station, um, just up the street from where we live. Uh, I think that's. Uh, I just we ate some a pizza shoals today. Yeah, which is is really good. I've been told it's the best pizza place in Portland, and I've been there twice now and and really enjoy it. Thin crust, kind of Italian style pizza. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so if, so if either of those businesses would like to uh, advertise on this podcast uh, for actual money, please get in touch. We're, uh, we're looking for sponsors. I had pho hung yesterday. I don't know if. If anyone who has any sort of uh, affiliation with Fa Hung will ever remotely <laughs> listen to this podcast, <laughs> right. but it was good. It's it's a go to Fa place. Uh, so until next time, act normal, bitches. Yeah.